Well, it is great to be here today. Uh, I do make my way around the campuses on occasion. I have to tell you, you are very blessed to have Kip and his worship team, just phenomenal. It's a blessing to be here. Um, I don't know about you, but I also think that's a blessing that's sunny and hot out. To me, this is way better than a foot of snow and cold and bit. You guys like that? So we do not want to complain about this weather because before we know it, you know what's going to come. We won't talk about that, but you know what's going to come. Uh, just to introduce myself a little bit, I am Brian Wood. I'm the pastor of adult ministries at the Troy campus. I've been married for not quite 15 years. I'll be married 15 years in August. And I have to do something special for my wife because on our 10-year anniversary, she was pregnant with my now four-year-old, and she was throwing up through that whole pregnancy. So when our 10-year came up, she's like, I just want to stay at home, and this is your fault, you know. So I was taking one for the team or trying to. So if you have any great ideas for anniversaries, let me know. I need a good idea to make up for that. Well, we have three kids, Isaac, who's 11. He's our soccer player. Ella, who's seven, she's sort of our artist, dancer, she does all sorts of things that are creative. And then Eli, our four-year-old, he is um, something special, let's just say that. He's what we call our whippersnapper, and we always joke around, if we had him first, he may be an only child. I don't know. So, but no, all of our kids are great, we love them, we appreciate them. Um, my wife is actually out in Colorado right now. I'm going to be joining her tomorrow. She's from Colorado. We met in Chicago, and she's sending me texts because her family's out there, how great it is and how we need to think about moving back there. So pray for me because this vacation is going to be interesting to say the least. Um, Back in January, I know we don't want to think about January, but back in January, I made this resolution. I don't normally make resolutions, but I made this resolution to lose 42 pounds by the time I turned 42. And I'm turning 42, if you can believe it. I can't believe it in two weeks from now. I've got a little ways to go, so I'm going to have to be serious. But I hear all these people saying, you know, I've been on this diet, I've lost all this weight, I feel great, and I don't know if I'm doing something wrong, but all I feel is hungry, like really hungry. And then on top of that, there's all these diets out there. There's Paleo and Weight Watchers and Whole30 and Atkins. Just out of interest, I looked up how big the dieting industry is. Last year alone, Americans spent $66 billion on dieting. $66 billion on getting slim, on getting trim, on trying to feel better physically. And I just wonder, with all that time, with all that effort, with all, those energy, with all that energy and those resources, what if we channeled that to our spiritual lives? How would we change? How would our spiritual lives change? How would our communities change? How would our church change or our homes or even our personal lives? 
When was the last time you went on a spiritual diet where you really recognized what you were consuming from culture, what you were taking in, and how you were nourishing your soul? You know, it's so easy in our culture to get sucked up with the things of this world, right? We live in a very materialistic culture, a culture that I've been all over the world. This is one of the wealthiest cultures, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and it's so easy to get lost in the wealth and the consumerism and to forget about God. And it's not only easy now, it was, it was easy back during the time of the Israelites. In fact, in Deuteronomy 8, God tells his people, before they go into the promised land, he gives them this warning. He says this. He says, you're going to be going into this land of milk and honey and riches, and your houses are going to increase, and your flocks are going to increase, and your possessions are going to increase. And be careful, because in the midst of all that blessing, you can easily forget about me. So he tells them time and time again in that chapter to remember me, to remember the Lord your God, and do not get enticed by saying, by my hand and my work and my might have I produced this. We can never forget that it's God's kingship and God's kingship alone that gives us life to its fullest, that gives us an abundant life. That's what God provides for us. It's never out of our own doing. Now, unfortunately, if you've been following along in our series, the Israelites have lost sight of this, right? They've allowed culture to creep in. They've allowed idols to creep into their lives. They're doing their own thing. They have their own agenda, their own wants, their own desires. And they're losing sight of God in the midst of it. Of it all. And right in chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see this more prominent than anything else. As they exchange God as their king for a human king. And one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is how do we avoid making the same mistakes? Because the reality is, is the pressures aren't any different for us. The first thing that we need to do we see right in chapter 8, is we need to recognize the tendency to reject God's kingship. If you have your Bibles open there, 1 Samuel chapter 8, let me read verses 1 through 5. It says this, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. This kind of reminds you of Eli and his sons, right? Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramath and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." 
So basically, you paint this scene. Samuel's getting old. His sons are corrupt. The people come to him and say, hey, we need to figure out a game plan here. We need to have a transition plan. You're getting old. Your sons are not going to be able to judge us because they are corrupt. We want a king. Now, their request wasn't an issue. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, there were provisions made for the people of Israel to have a king. The problem was, is in that request, what did they say? They wanted to be like the other nations. Instead of focusing vertically on God, they were focused horizontally on the things around them. They wanted to be like the other nations. God had called the people of Israel to be set apart from all the other nations, to be a light to the world, to be his bride, to live up to the calling that he had given them, and they're reducing that calling to being like those around them, to be consumed with the things around them. And it's a travesty because they actually think that that's good. Now, one of the things that we have to do in this world, in this life, in this country in which we live, is we have to make sure that we're not living, that we don't have our eyesight horizontally. We always need to make sure that our eyes are pointed towards the Lord. Because how easy is it, just like in Deuteronomy chapter 8, to let the blessings of this life and the wealth of this culture get in the way of our relationship with God. How easy is it for our hearts to start saying, I want to be like my neighbor, or I want to be like that person, or I want to be like the people around me. I want what they have. I want these blessings. And before long, we realize the blessings have taken over God's kingship. John Piper wrote about this in his book, A Hunger for God. See if this resonates. He said, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the x-rayed video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from his banquet table of love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, or a relationship. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of this earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. We live in a culture of consumerism with milk and honey and goods and stuff all around us, these blessings from God that easily distract us from the Lord himself, that can easily come in and take place of his kingship. 
Paul says this in Ephesians 5. He says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. What Paul is saying is, hey, it is easy in life to start going through the motions. And as we start going through the motions, we can easily lose sight of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I remember way back when, I hate to say that now, but way back when, when I was in high school, I said to myself, hey, someday I'm going to finish my degree. Someday I'm going to get a job. Someday I may get a house. Someday I may get married. Someday I may have kids. Someday I may have a dog, which I regret. Someday I may do all these things. Isn't it amazing how all these somedays sneak up on us? And how fast time goes. And if we don't stop to actually evaluate our lives, we'll get sucked up into life, only thinking horizontally and not realizing what God's call for our lives is vertically. Getting sucked up into life and start actually wanting the desires of those around us instead of the desires of God. That's what the people were facing. So in verse 6, we read, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Probably one of the saddest verses in the Bible. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. These people of God rejected God as their king. Verse 8, according to all the deeds they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. God was their rescuer. He was their provider. He was their deliverer. And now they're putting God basically on the back burner saying, hey, we want a king just like all the other nations because we know what's right for ourselves. We want our agenda. We want our desires. We want our wants met. And this is how. So God says to Samuel, says, give them a warning. It's sort of a last chance to realize the consequences of an alternative ruler. So in verse 9, it says this, Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. I mean, that was an act of mercy by God. So what are the consequences of having a human king? Listen to this. So Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest. But that's not it. And to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. But that's not it. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. But that's not it. 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And we're not done yet. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. And it's not over yet. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, who in their right mind would sign up for that? Seriously, who would sign up for that? To be taxed, to be enslaved, to have to give up your possessions, to be under someone that doesn't have your best in mind, only has his best in mind. And yet, this is what the people do. You know, just to give you a little context here. One of the reasons why the people wanted a king is because a king from any nation, also from the pagan nations, would go out, and as he went out to war, he would bring gods, his gods and his idols with him to sort of win the victory or try to win the victory in that battle. One of the reasons why Israel wanted a king was so that they could, in a sense, manipulate God through that king. They want God to almost be a pawn of the king. The irony is what God is saying to them is, I'm not the one who's going to be the pawn. Guess who's going to be the pawn? It's the people. The people are the ones who are going to get used and abused through this process. The people are the ones that are going to become enslaved into the things of this world because they have lost sight of God and his kingship. My wife has this movie. I'm embarrassed to admit it. It's called The Devil Wears Prada. I'm like, you have that movie as a pastor's wife. That's terrible. Devil Wears Prada. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, I saw it in a very submissive way with her because she wanted to see it with me. Um, and in that movie, there's this lady that basically she's in the fashion industry and she has a boss that's a tyrant and she's doing everything she can to keep this position, everything she can to please her boss, everything that she can to make it in this industry. And what she finds out over time is she's basically sold herself out. She's lost everything that she loves, everything that she's cared about, and she's become a slave to those things. That's what Samuel is trying to tell the people, is that you're thinking horizontally. You're getting consumed with the things in this earth. You're getting consumed with the things of the nations. And that's going to enslave you. And one of the things that we have to ask ourselves as we pursue jobs, as we pursue money, as we pursue possessions, are we able to leverage those things for God and his kingdom? Or are we actually becoming enslaved to those things? 
those things becoming our gods? Are those things taking God's kingship? You know, unfortunately, the people don't heed God's warning. In verses 19 through 22, it says this, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the other nations. There they have it again. That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. A king did two things in the Old Testament. The first thing was he judged the people. The second thing was he went out into battle for the people. Verse 21 says, And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he reported them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Isn't it amazing how sin blinds us? It seems so logical what the people should do. And yet they're going this other way. I don't know if you've ever had someone come alongside you who is struggling with something and you're trying to tell them it is so logical what they should do in that moment, in that relationship, in that circumstance, but they are so blinded by sin and emotion and their own desires, they can't see in front of their own face. That's where the people are at. So they consume themselves with the things of this world, despite God warning them, despite having a king that's actually above all kings. So what happens? God ends up giving them a king, right? Who was the next king, or who was the first king over Israel? Saul. Was he a good king? No, he was not a good king. And then after Saul, David. And then after David, his son, Solomon. And what happened? We had 12 tribes in Israel, and we had 10 to the north and 2 to the south, and the people weren't listening, and the thing that God warned them about in Deuteronomy 8 came to fruition. The people got consumed with the things and the blessings in the promised land. They'd lost sight of God, and their enemies came in and started destroying them. In 722, the Assyrians come in and decimate the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is saying, at least we're protected. We've got God's holy city. And a couple hundred years later, in 586, the Babylonians come in and decimate the rest of Israel. Now, as these kings are being realized in Israel... The word king means Messiah or anointed one. So David was actually a Messiah. Solomon was a Messiah. He was an anointed one. And as these kings go through the line, there's some that are good. There are some that are really bad. There's some that are in the middle. But one of the things that's realized is as these prophets 
are prophesying God's word, there's this disconnect because these prophets are talking about this Messiah who is going to be a deliverer, he is going to be a rescuer, he is going to free God's people, he is going to be faithful to God, and king after king after king are falling short. These messiahs aren't doing it. They're not fulfilling the prophecy. So the people begin to understand there must be a great Messiah that is to come. And we get to the time of Jesus, right? And Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus starts talking about this kingdom. And he's using this language. And he's also talking about these prophecies. And he says stuff like, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. So Jesus starts talking about this kingdom. And the people, in their mind, what does a king do? The king leads us into battle. The king leads us into war. The king is going to reestablish Israel. Because at that time, Israel is under the Roman occupation, right? So they want Jesus to lead them into battle against Rome. And for Jesus, that is way too small a thing. Because Jesus is not just a king over the physical, he's the king over the spiritual. He wasn't establishing a physical kingdom, he was establishing an everlasting spiritual kingdom that he wanted everyone to be a part of. And Jesus continues to talk about this kingdom and says in John 10, 10, through me and through me alone, you will have life and life to its fullest or life in its abundance. And we know the rest of the story where Jesus inaugurates his kingdom through the gospel. And that's where I want to leave us with today. How the gospel and God's kingship is tied together. Now, if you have your Bibles, this won't be up on the slides, but if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Just a couple verses. If you don't have a snapshot of the gospel in mind or a go-to for the gospel, this is a perfect representation of not only the gospel, but also Jesus' kingship. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, And you, you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So, G, so Paul's talking to these people, and he's saying, You were once dead. Now, He's talking to people who are physically alive. When the Bible talks about us being dead before God, it basically means our relationship with God is broken. And there's a lot of synonyms that the Bible uses to paint a picture of that death. The Bible says, hey, if you are dead, if your relationship with God is broken, it means you're blind, it means you're in darkness, it means that you're an orphan, it means that you're estranged from God, it means that... You're under his wrath or object, an object of his wrath. 
But the awesome thing is Jesus doesn't leave us there. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive together with him. So one of the things that we have to ask is, if Christ is taking us from death to life, what are the opposite of all those synonyms? If, if we were once blind, he is allowing us to see. If we were once in darkness, he's taking us into the light. If we were once orphans, he's allowing us to be his children. If we were once objects of wrath, we are now objects of his mercy, of his love, of his grace. That's what Christ our King does. He takes us from death and brokenness to life and restoration. But how does that happen? The end of verse 13 says, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Now let me ask you a question. What is outside of all? Not much, right? I can't think of anything outside of all. Jesus, in coming to earth as our king, has forgiven us of our sin, past, present, and future. Everything is covered by his blood. Now, if you were to ask somebody, the average person on the street, hey, why do you think you'll go to heaven? What do most people say? I'm a good person, right? What they're in effect saying is the reason why I'm going to heaven is because of myself. And even at that, that's guesswork. How good do we have to be? Do we have to be really good or sort of good? Which flies in the face of what God's word says. Listen to this. Jesus says, or goes on in verse 14. It says, how does this forgiveness come about? Paul says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Jesus, back in Matthew 18, said, if you want to know, if you want a picture of your record of debt, when you stand before a holy and righteous God, it's like this. Imagine a servant before his master. And a master says, you owe me 10,000 talents. And the master says to his servant, you have to pay me. And the servant says, I can't pay you. And the master says, then you and your family are going to be thrown in jail. So the servant begs and pleads. And what does the master say? The master says, I will forgive you. I will release you of that debt. Now, here's the thing. A talent was worth 20 years wages. What Jesus was saying is when we stand before a holy and righteous God, we are utterly spiritually bankrupt. There is no hope but for his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness. There is no, I am a good person. We are indebted to him beyond what we can pay. 
So Jesus cancels this record of debt. Now, how did that come about? It says this, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So he takes this record of debt, this mountain of debt, and he nails it to the cross. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there are three things that were nailed to the cross. One of them was who? Jesus, right? So he's nailed to the cross, and then there's a sign above his head which reads what? King of the Jews. Matthew says that that sign was Jesus' charges against him. The charges were above Jesus' head. Paul is telling us, Paul is giving us this picture where Jesus is hanging on the cross, nailed to the cross, and not only does it say king of the Jews, but all of our charges and our sin are above his head, past, present, and future. Everything that I have done in my life against a holy and righteous God is over Christ's head, and he is paying my debt. That's why he went to the cross. For all of my charges, for all of my sin, for everything that I've done wrong. Now, Paul goes on to paint one more picture. And this is where it comes full circle. He says in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. Now, that is weird. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. We've got this picture of Jesus who is bruised, who is battered, who is bleeding, who is being crucified on a cross. How in the world is he disarming rulers and authorities and putting them to shame? Well, one of the things that we have to realize is who the rulers and the authorities are. Paul is talking about, it's not the rulers and authorities of this earth. He's talking about Satan and his minions. Satan and his minions, or Satan and the demons. Christ was disarming them, which begs the other question, well, what were they armed with? Have you ever thought about that? What are Satan's weapons? Satan's weapons are sin and death, right? Now, Jesus is up on the cross. He's dying on our behalf. What is Jesus overcoming? What's Jesus overcoming? Sin and death. Sin and death. Satan thinks he's having triumph by killing Jesus on the cross when in fact Jesus is putting Satan to shame because he is disarming him. He is overcoming sin and death for our sakes. And then Paul rounds it out by saying this, by triumphing over them in him. This word triumph, that Christ had triumph, 
One of the things, if you lived 2,000 years ago, if you heard the, the word triumph, it was a military word. Where your mind would have gone is a king coming upon a city, stripping his enemy of his weapons, and going in and plundering and overtaking that city. In fact, Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 3, he said this, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. That strong man was Satan. He had his grip on the world. Jesus was coming in to bind Satan and then to plunder his goods. So the picture that Paul is painting here is Jesus is equal with God. And we know according to Philippians chapter 2 that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on, but he emptied himself. So Jesus is with his Father in heaven, and he, as our king, comes down to earth or comes down to this city. And coming down to this city, he is going against his enemy, which is not the Romans. It's Satan and his minions or his demons. And he is stripping Satan of his weapons, which is sin and death. And in stripping his enemy of his weapons, he is going into the world, going into the city, going into that house, and he is plundering it or taking that treasure as a king for himself. Now, here's the last question. What is that treasure that Jesus is taking? That treasure is you and me. treasure is you and me. Jesus is the king and we are his treasure. You go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We read about this earthly king and all that he wants to do is enslave his people. And you go through hundreds of years of enslavement and, and um, just depression and death and finally Jesus rightfully takes his place as king and Jesus says this the son of man did not come into the world to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many that's Jesus's kingship that Jesus would come into this world that he would willingly embrace death for our sake so that we could have life and so that we could be his treasure. Is there anything on earth more important than that? Is there anyone on earth that we would rather give our lives to? This world pulls us a hundred different directions all vying for our attention, all vying for kingship. But there's only one king who died on our behalf to give us life 
so that we could be his treasure. That's King Jesus, the one who gives life, the one who gives life abundantly. To him be the glory and the honor and the praise evermore for that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have a king who is willing to give up everything, who, as your word says, was willing to go into poverty for our sakes. We thank you that we have a king that embraced death so that we could have life. We thank you that we have a king that considers us to be his treasure, Lord. May we never look to the right or to the left, but may we always remember that there is only one king that provides life and life abundantly. That's you, Lord. And may our lives reflect that truth in whatever we do, in whatever we say, and may you and you alone be glorified through that. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.